Today we're reading from Romans, chapter 6, verses 1 to 18. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning, that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin, sin shall no longer be your master, because you, you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are no longer under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, uh, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Well, this month we're paying attention to what the Bible reveals about our identity, about who we are because of our faith in Christ, which begs a question, of course, for those who may be visiting and saying, well, I don't really have faith in Christ. I'm just checking this whole faith thing out. In your case, this is an opportunity to take a look at what a life of faith looks like, at who God says that we are and how we live in light of that, and we welcome you to journey alongside of us. We have our bookmark in Romans, a first century letter written by Paul to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. The idea is that if we can be clear about who we are when we start each day, the chances of living the life that we've been created and called to live will be that much greater. So last week we started off with the incredibly good news that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. But we all know what it's like to be left wanting more of something, 
Now this past week was Apple launch day. It seems like they happen all the time. And this company goes and they reveal some big new thing and all the excitement builds up. What new thing are they going to give us? Because the things that we have aren't good enough. We want more gadgets, we want more capabilities, we want more capacity. There's always something more, there's always something new for us to get our hands on. And it's kind of funny actually, you know, in the first century when Paul was writing to these Roman believers, at least a handful of them came up with an interesting strategy. They thought this is good news that we get God's grace, this is a really good thing, but we want more of it. We want more of this grace. So how would we get that? Well, it seemed like a fairly simple formula. If we sin, God gives us his grace and forgives us. So the way to get more grace is how? To sin more. So they said, this is the answer. If we can just sin more, then we'll get more grace. And that means we're getting more of God. This is wonderful. In the words of a 20th century poet, W.H. Oden, I love to sin, God loves to forgive, the world is admirably arranged. This is perfect. This is perfect. By no means, though, Paul responds in Romans 6, 2. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And there it is, a statement about our identity. We are those who have died to sin. You want to know who you are as someone who has faith in Christ? You're someone who's died to sin. That is part of the past. But of course, we're all very much alive here this morning, as were the people reading Paul's letter in the first century. So what is this death that he's talking about? In verse 6, he writes, We know that our old self was crucified with Jesus so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now, hold on a minute, you say, slaves? Us? What does this have to do with us? How, does the, how do these words apply to us? We're not slaves. Well, I read that again this week, and I was reminded of the, of the classic movie, The Matrix, and that scene where Neo meets the infamous Morpheus for the first time, and Morpheus mentions something about truth, and and Neo responds, what truth? And the response he gets, that you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. We're all slaves. That's the lesson of this movie, that we're all slaves. How can we be freed from this? Now, we may find the idea of being slaved every bit as ridiculous as Neo did, but only if we refuse to stop and think about it. Because as soon as we do, as soon as we stop to think about it, it's right there in front of us. The strong pull of an addiction. A deep-seated need for the approval of others. The intensity of lust and desire. A fear of failure. An inability to let go of the past. The compulsion to have more and more. Each of these and many more examples are reminders of just how easy it is for us to be enslaved, to feel like we have no control, like something inside of us is waging war against our better inclinations. In Romans chapter 7, as Paul continues this line of thought, he, he says these words that we can all identify with. He says, we know the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? 
from one thing to another, we just can't seem to shake ourselves free. And we have that similar experience of wanting to do something but not being able to do it. Contemporary author Yuval Noah Harari writes, when we break down our prison walls and run towards freedom, we are in fact running into the more spacious exercise yard of a bigger prison. We try to get free from one thing and we just end up being enslaved to something else. But is this the end of the story or can we get out of this revolving door of madness? Well, as a remedy, Paul draws our attention to Jesus who died to sin but lives to God. In the same way, he says, count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And there's an important thing for us to think about. How we count ourselves is a key factor. In other words, what we think about ourselves. He's like, yes, you know, you've been enslaved to sin, but you need to think about yourselves as being dead to sin. Like, that is a part of your past. That has been buried in the ground. That's how you need to count yourselves. That's how you need to think about yourselves. And so as we explore this idea of our identity in Christ, we need to be able to find a way to say, I am not a slave to sin. I have been set free. We sang the song, you broke my chains of sin and shame. You covered me with grace. It is for freedom that I am set free. This is an important part of our identity that we've got to find a way to get our heads wrapped around. And part of the reason that we sing songs like this, part of the reason that we repeat words like these, even if these are familiar to you, Jamie Smith wrote that Christian worship is a re-narration of who we are and whose we are. That's one of the main things we do when we gather, to remind ourselves who we are and who we belong to. So in our reading in Romans 6, Paul continues, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law but under grace. And it's this last concept that I really want to take a run at this morning. What does it mean for us to be under grace? Now, it goes without saying that we don't like thinking about ourselves as being slaves to anyone or anything. We quite prefer our freedom and our autonomy. But what if being enslaved to one thing was the key to being set free from everything else that threatens to damage our souls? Would we be willing to wear those chains? So Paul continues a couple of verses later, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are the slave of the one you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now I understand that, that it can be uncomfortable to talk about something like slavery, but it was the world of Paul's time, and everyone reading his letter would have known what he was talking about. When we think about slavery, we tend to think of the African slave trade, that's what comes to mind. And thanks to, to movies that have been put out recently, we, you know, we have ideas of just the horror and the terror of that, of that trade. And it's a little different for us to think about Roman slavery in the first century. And I, I don't want to minimize it, but I want to help maybe paint a little bit of a different picture. Um, I've been reading some historical statistics, which of course are best guesses, um, but it's believed that one out of every four people in Rome in the first century was actually a slave. So a significant portion of the population, and actually 90% of the population had someone in their extended family who was at one point in their life in slavery. So as Paul is writing this letter to the Romans, he's not using some example, like for us, that's just foreign. Like for us, we're like trying to wrap our heads around this concept of slavery. He's writing to people who, there were people in this Roman church who would have been slaves, like guaranteed. And 
like 90% of them, at least statistically speaking, would have had a family member who either currently was or previously was in slavery. So this was a, a current reality for them. Now, slavery was a little different, at least for some people. For some people, I'm sure it was just an awful living and experience. But for others, it was a way to stay alive. It was people who didn't have the networks or the skills to, uh, or the means to be able to survive, and so they would offer themselves, as the language he uses, offer themselves to someone as an obedient slave. And it would basically be like a very low-level, menial employee who is bound to that master, so to speak. But then there was always the possibility of changing who this master was. And so F.F. F. Bruce, a commentator on the Book of Romans, writes that the master's authority over a slave is at an end when the slave passes into the ownership of a new master. And so this is part of what we need to understand as Paul's talking about slavery and freedom, is the idea that you could be slave, a slave to one master and then another master could purchase you and you would now be belong to that master. So Paul insinuates that the only way to overcome slavery to sin is to take on new chains because that was the only way to overcome slavery in the first century. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Now, we can certainly not identify with the plight of a first century slave, but we might at least get a sense of the situation by thinking about some of our employment experiences. I'm sure you can imagine being employed by a boss who was maybe less than ideal. And you can think about, you know, maybe the way that he or she treated you, the environment that was created. And then you can maybe think about an employment situation where you had a great boss who was just wonderful in, in all ways, right? And you, so you can imagine thinking, even for that, you know, low-level employee, that, that slave, that person who was bound to someone, that some slave masters would be better than others. You could be in a situation where it was just destroying your life. But you could also be in a situation, even of slavery, where you were well taken care of, where you were provided for, and where you actually had an opportunity to grow beyond the state of a slave. Well, if all you've known in life is what you've experienced at the hand of a slave master boss called sin, then it might be hard to imagine ever finding a boss who would treat you well. But that's the vision that, that Paul is trying to cast for the first century believers and for us as well. I read from chapter 6, verse 22 and 23, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know that often this, this line, the wages of sin is, is death, we, we think about it because it's often been preached as in like, if you sin, you go to hell. But that's certainly not what Paul was talking about here. He was saying that sin is, is a crappy employer. Sin is a lousy employer, a cheap employer. It pays less than minimum wage. Sin makes you work long overtime hours without compensation. It doesn't care about workplace safety. It doesn't provide benefits like paid vacation days. It docks your pay if you have to stay home sick. It doesn't allow room for promotion. It doesn't listen to your ideas. It doesn't provide you with healthy feedback. It doesn't care about your personal problems. It doesn't care about your career aspirations. It doesn't care about you. That's the kind of employer or slave master that sin is. And so what it pays you is death. It destroys your life. It destroys my life. But the gift of God is eternal life, Paul counters. Everything a life of sin fails to provide is found in the reward of a godly life, a life lived under grace. Now, it's important for us, as we're trying to understand how this works, to avoid thinking of this like, if I live the right life, God will reward me. Because that's not what Paul is telling us here. 
We need to think of it more like God created me to live in a way that opens the door to a full and abundant life. After all, he didn't say the wages of sin is death and the wages of God is eternal life. He said the gift of God. God doesn't pay us for what we deserve. He doesn't pay us with a good life and with blessing and eternal life because we do good things. This is a really important thing, a basic thing for us to understand about our identity by faith. But this is what grace is about. God gives us this amazing gift. Though you used to be slaves to sin, he writes, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. This pattern of teaching, what is he talking about? Well, I think we can most basically explain it as the way of Jesus, right? In our call to worship this morning, we have this line that says we, we gather here to, to center ourselves on the story of Jesus. That's what we gather together. It's like, okay, who is, who is Jesus? How is he, what has he revealed about, about God? How do we follow in his steps? How do we pattern our lives after him? What, this is the, the teaching that we're called to, to follow. This is like the slave master's instructions, if you will. And we can think of this as, okay, well, these are just more rules. We got sin as a boss in telling us to live this way, and now we've got, you know, obedience as a boss telling us to do this over here. But it's not always a bad thing. And in the case of a life of faith, it's not a bad thing at all. N.T. Wright says, to accept appropriate moral constraints is not to curtail freedom, but to create the conditions for it to flourish. And so this idea of, of having, obeying from our heart, this pattern of teaching, this idea of having an allegiance to a master, it's not to restrict our freedom, but it's actually to create the conditions for it to flourish. I remember, I think it was back in university, hearing about this experiment that was done um, with children on a playground. Uh, and basically, they, these children had this broad open playground, and they noticed, these people who were doing this research, they noticed that the kids tended to play toward the middle of the playground, say this big old field, um, but they would stay there in the middle. And then they did this experiment where they, they put a fence up around the perimeter of the playground, and the children immediately started playing at the perimeters of the playground. They started going, and they're climbing the fences, and they're playing their games up against the fences. And what they realized was that actually, like, boundaries and borders and restrictions can increase the freedom. So they're saying the kids felt more free to explore this playground because there was boundaries and borders in place. And actually, when there's no borders at all, they tend to experience fear and, and maybe don't have the confidence to, to go very far. We can think of the same kind of thing when you think about music or, or art, right, in other ways. Like if there's no boundaries or no rules at all, well, the music would be horrible. The art would just be meaningless. But when you create borders, here's the canvas for you to work with. Here are the notes for you to work with. You can create something beautiful out of this. Freedom is not the absence of commitment, but the ability to choose and commit myself to what is best for me. So I've talked to some parents in our community about the delicate balance between freedom and control that you experience with your children at different stages of life. When you're a parent of very young children, you have a lot of control over them, uh, but you have no personal freedom, right? You know what I mean? Like I saw this line, you know, both kids finally napping, and I'm like, out. Like, you just have no freedom to, to live the way you'd really like to live, right? But you have control over the clothes the children wear and where they sleep and what they're doing with their lives. I mean, they can't go anywhere without you. So you have control, but your freedom is lacking. And as they get older and kids enter in through adolescence, it kind of goes to the next stage. And you just all of a sudden, 
you start giving up some of that control. And you have freedom. I mean, heck, you can go out for coffee whenever you feel like it. You don't have to stay home anymore. And you give up this control. And the reason is because kids need different things at different stages of their lives. When a child is young, they need a parent who can control them. They actually need that. And when a child reaches adolescence, they need a, a greater experience of freedom. And so parents have to adjust along the way. And I think there's actually an interesting pattern that we can see in a life of faith. Part of this language about being slaves to righteousness and obedient to this master that we have is because we need this, especially early on in our faith. Now, if you can imagine, again, back to this first century, that a slave uh, is, belongs to a master, and part of the reason that they belong to this master is they really couldn't get by in life on their own. And then someone walks by and says, I'm going to do a great thing. I'm going to pay for this slave's freedom. You're free now. Off with you. What happens to that person? Well, before long, maybe by the end of the day, maybe by the end of the week, they're a slave to someone else because they actually don't have what it takes to survive as an independent and free person. And so the best thing for that person to do would not be to say, you're free, off with you, but would be say, I'm purchasing you and, and you will now be my slave and I'm going to treat you wonderfully and I'm going to teach you. And there are examples in the history in, in the first century Rome where, where some people would actually invest in and allow their slaves to, to save some money and to be able to purchase their freedom. And when they were at a place where they were actually healthy and strong enough to, and independent enough to survive as free people, they would be granted their freedom. And I think there's something about this in the life of faith, where in the beginning, maybe Christianity seems like just another version of slavery. Well, now we just have to be obedient to this law. Well, yeah, in the beginning we do. Peter Block writes that freedom is a young and awkward child that needs nourishment to keep growing. And I'm so sure she grew up to be a wonderful person. But freedom is this young and awkward child. To just grant someone freedom is not actually the best thing because our tendency will be to slide back into a pattern, an unhealthy pattern. And so there's a nurturing that needs to happen. Perhaps we could think of God as a loving slave master who is preparing his slaves to become free men and women when we're ready. Now, some people actually want to stop short of this. Brennan Manning, in his classic book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, writes, Sad, but true. Some Christians want to be slaves. It is easier to let others make decisions or rely upon the letter of the law. And so for some, the idea of like, okay, yeah, I don't want to be a slave to sin, but I'm happy being a slave to these rules. I'm happy just being obedient and following these rules, and, and this is really what life is all about. But Paul gives us hints of something else and something other and something further than this idea of, of being even slaves. He says, by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so we can serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And so there are all kinds of laws and codes and rules that we are called to obey and to follow, but not forever necessarily, because we're called to live in this new way of the spirit there's this popular idea out there that religion is just slavery, and for a lot of people it is a form of slavery. But that's kind of what Paul is saying here, is that can't be the end of the story, because God wants us to be free, and we need to learn to live in a way so that we can eventually be free people. He's advocating the way of the Spirit as something new. But of course it wasn't something that he knew that he came up with in the moment. It's something that God had promised his people centuries before. Prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31 says this, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, 
because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. It's a beautiful vision that God casts for his people of a time when all of these rules and all of these regulations that are meant to shape and form his people will kind of pass away because people will be living in step with and in tune with the spirit of God. It's a beautiful vision for us. And so as we make our way towards this new way of the spirit, holding freedom and faithfulness together is our challenge. How do we remain faithful to God while growing in our understanding and experience of freedom? The result is a life fully lived, a life that is not only personally fulfilling, but that overflows to the lives around us. And I want to close with this thought, because the point of being free people is not just so we can live these autonomous, independent lives. The ultimate goal of being free people is so that we can also extend that freedom to the people around us. N.T. Wright says, the call to holiness, this, this obedience we're talking about, comes precisely because it is as genuine human beings that we will be able to sum up the praises of creation. And as genuine human beings that we will be able to bring God's justice, freedom, beauty, peace, and above all, rescuing love to the world. This beautiful vision. And so we move from a place of slavery to sin into this place of slavery to righteousness so that we can become the kinds of people who not only live free lives ourselves, but help others to experience freedom as well. Close with this quote from Romans 7. Paul asked this question earlier, and I cut the verse off halfway through. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will rescue me from this, this cycle of, of sin, this, this pattern of destruction? Who will rescue me? Well, he answers his own question. Thanks be to God. It's through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is with us. We're not alone in this. I'd like to invite you to stand. We'll close in prayer as we end this part of our time together. Lord, we gather here in this place to experience this re-narration of our lives. Who are we and whose are we? And what we've heard this morning is an answer to the question, who are we? We are not slaves to sin, but we are free in Christ. And in answer to the question, whose are we? We are yours. We are loved by you. And God, we are grateful for this invitation. I pray that as we think about these words, as we let these words of Scripture sink into our minds and our hearts today and this week, that we would remind ourselves, that we would bring those words to our, to our minds and, and speak them even out loud. I'm not a slave to sin. I am free in Christ. That we would remind ourselves of these things and that this freedom would bubble up in us and overflow to the people and into the world around us. We ask that you go with us today as we gather around the gym and engage in conversations with each other and explore the different avenues of our church and what it means to, to live a life of community together. God, I pray that you would be with us. And may the words that we've spoken this morning echo in our minds and hearts throughout this week. We pray with thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. So normally we have uh, tables and we sit around and discuss, but this morning we're going to do something different as we do kind of on the second 
uh, week back every fall. We're going to invite you to head to the gym for some snacks and refreshments. There are tables set up around the perimeter, and we invite you to just wander slowly, chat with the different people who lead different areas of our church, and find out how you can get involved in serving or just being involved in the life of the community in what happens outside of Sunday mornings. At 11 o'clock, we'll do our benediction in there and formally dismiss our kids at that time as well. Make your way over to the gym, engage in some good conversations. Thanks.